Canada, our powerful neighbor to the north, is selling us lots and lots of energy. Is that the new normal? My name is Richard Miles at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm pleased to say today that we're actually co-hosting this podcast with Energy 360, which is also a podcast of CSIS, the Energy Program. Joining me today are Andrew Stanley from the Energy Program here at CSIS and Chris Sands from the School of Advanced International Studies at John Hopkins University. Welcome, gentlemen. Andrew, we already know a lot about Chris. He's been on a show a few times, and so I'm, I'm sure our listeners are bored of hearing about Chris Sands, but yeah, this is the first time you've been on the show. So, so tell us a little bit about you know, sort of your pre-CSIS life. I'm, I'm guessing from your accent, you probably weren't born in the United States. And I see from your resume, you've spent time in London, Dublin, uh, Copenhagen. So tell us a little bit about Andrew Stanley pre-CSIS. Yeah, and you can probably see from my red hair and my freckles that I'm... Uh... Very typically, I'm from Ireland. Um, started off in the energy industry, working at Shell. Uh, moved on from there, and I worked as a tax consultant uh, at KPMG in Ireland before moving out to the US to work with the energy program. Um, so I, I typically focus on oil and gas, um, and more recently, more of energy trading relationships has been a focus of many of the projects we've been doing with the program. And this part, the Canadian-US energy trading relationship, is a is an interesting one that we've been taking a look at. Um, yeah, it is. I think most people who don't sort of study Canada uh, for a living are surprised when they uh, finally understand sort of the magnitude of the energy relationship. Um, I know I was, and I think probably a lot of Americans still don't know the, the, the extent to which we have that energy relationship, and now increasingly with Mexico. Um, but today, obviously, it's, it's all Canada. So, uh, Andrew, let's start with the big picture. Um, what's to, to give people a sense of that magnitude, what is the total trade in energy between Canada and the United States? If you could break those down into sort of the major components in terms of types of uh, or power, and then how does that picture today compare to, say, a decade ago? Yeah. So it, it really is vast, and it's, it is the largest energy trading partnership between any two countries in the world. And so when we took a look at it, we put an exact number on it. And um, what it came out to in 2017 was $95 billion worth of energy commodities. Uh, so, you know, this includes crude oil, petroleum products, natural gas, electricity, coal, uranium, and fuel, fuel ethanol. In terms of the volume of that, the, that equates to seven, over 7 million barrels of oil equivalent per day. Uh, so I did a quick calculation this morning to see, to try and put that into more layman's terms and understanding what that is. So that, that could power the world for 39 minutes every single day wow. is the energy trade between Canada and the US. Um, so in terms of that breakdown between the imports and the exports, it's, it's Canada holds a, a, a very significant energy trade surplus uh, with the US. It exports roughly four times the amount of commodities to the US than what the US exported to Canada. Uh, and, and the largest component of this is crude oil. Um, Canada exports $50 billion worth of crude oil uh, in 2017. And these exports primarily come from Alberta, the center of oil and gas production in Canada. Another very significant part is natural gas. Um, the volumes are very large, but natural gas these days is very cheap because there's a lot of it on the market. More than 10 billion cubic feet was, was traded last year over the border. Uh, and then once again, this primarily consists of exports coming from Western Canada uh, down into the US and of, often serves many markets within the US that US pipelines cannot currently reach. Another interesting part is electricity, which is becoming an increasingly important part, um, especially for, for states along the border. 
Uh, the two countries share more than 30 transmission points. Uh, last year, they traded 82 terawatt hours of electricity. Uh, you know, and this is, while this is quite a small number in terms of overall energy demand in the US and Canada, some, sometimes we kind of forget how massive the US market is. Uh, so we, we tried to, once again, put this into more of a layman's terms. And what it came out to was that 82 terawatt hours is actually the same amount of electricity produced by a country like Belgium. Wow. So it is very significant. When one follow-up, Andrew, on the on the crude oil, um, I think the extent that most Americans have heard of sort of Canada Energy, it's been about the Keystone Pipeline because it, it was a political yeah. issue. It's been a political issue. It was a political issue. Uh, now, there are other pipelines that carry crude to the United States. Why was the Keystone Pipeline such a big deal? What, what was the argument for it? I, we, we're sort of familiar with the arguments against it, but what was the argument for it? Why, why was it necessary? Well, the argument for it was that it, it was a mutually beneficial pipeline that would bring oil from Alberta down to the U.S. And there's many refineries in the U.S. that are dependent on that type, the specific type of oil that comes from the oil sands which is a heavy, heavy sour type of oil. So refineries along the Gulf Coast, they process that type of crude. And um, so it's in their interest to get that crude. At the same time, it's in Alberta's interest to economically export their, their crude. And as they produce more and more, they need that outlet or that export market to get that product there. I see. So it wasn't just uh, we need another pipeline because we've got so much oil. It's we need a pipeline to take this type of crude to a specific type of refinery in the U.S. Gulf. Yeah, and also it, what, it, what it would do is it would also link back in shale oil, which was at the time, uh, because of the shale revolution in the U.S., production in the back end, which is in North Dakota, which is very close to Alberta, was booming. So the idea was that that pipeline would run down to there, pick up some of that crude as well, and then be able to bring that down to the to the places where it would be refined and then ultimately exported or consumed within the domestic market. Um, let, let's take a, a break here and ask Chris. Um, Chris, we're, we're sort of, you know, we've talked about NAFTA a lot and maybe we won't have to talk about NAFTA very much for a while, <laughs> uh, depending on sort of the next 24, 48 hours, which by my count is sort of the, the absolute last drop dead time that we can get an agreement uh, under fast track authority. But uh, all that said, if if we enter an era in which um, NAFTA has sort of either gone away or is in a zombie stra uh, status, does that make any difference at all in terms of Canada energy trade? Well, it's an interesting question, and, and a lot of people who have followed the NAFTA renegotiation have been asking, why isn't energy a bigger part of the discussion, given that it's so important in terms of the overall trade between the U.S. and Canada? And part of the reason is that the U.S. and Canada settled some of their outstanding disputes about the trade uh, in the 1980s when they signed a bilateral free trade agreement. And at the time, the big concern was a Canadian policy was adopted in 1980 called the National Energy Program, under which the Canadians, at a period of shortage because of the oil shock at the second end of the 1970s, decided that they would... Um, keep the oil inside Canada to create an artificially low, not world market, but below world market price for gasoline and oil products as a, as a lever for economic development. Alberta did not like this because they wanted to get as close to world market prices as possible and help grow their economy. But uh, it was something that Canada had tried, and it really 
began unpacking some of the integration of the oil sector that had occurred. And so uh, the Reagan administration was determined to put a stop to that. So we agreed that we would um, promote the integration of our energy systems and that in times of shortage, we would honor contracts and not pull back energy uh, discriminating against the other country's consumers. Um, so we, we accomplished that well before NAFTA came in, and because Mexico at the time was unwilling to put energy on the NAFTA table because constitutionally they couldn't allow for an investment in the sector, they had uh, a number of prohibitions, uh, NAFTA took the Canada-U.S. understanding, uh, tweaked it a bit, uh, refined it a bit, but we've been able to operate since that time under NAFTA rules uh, fairly well. Many in the oil sector going in, uh, particularly oil, somewhat gas, going into the NAFTA negotiations, argued that there is a clause, and it's a small clause of the NAFTA, uh, that they call a ratchet clause. If if one of the countries liberalizes their market in any way, then other provisions of, of NAFTA can be said to apply to it, even if it wasn't liberalized before. So the energy sector said, well, uh, Mexico, by opening up uh, its constitution, reforming its energy sector and creating new market opportunities for international players, has in effect brought that sector under the protection of investor state dispute settlement and some of the other provisions that are incorporated in NAFTA, like Chapter 19, which is the dispute settlement uh, between uh, over commercial issues or, or failure to provide national treatment. So energy hasn't been contentious, and many in the energy sector, I think, would be happy to have NAFTA stay as it is. Uh, but there's a large feeling that uh, NAFTA, even if it's revised, is not going to harm the energy sector. So it doesn't get the play, but it is a very important part of our trilateral trade. So, Chris, tell me this. If the Trump administration tomorrow were to announce we're, we're pulling out of the NAFTA, the existing one, and they send a, the 180-day notification to Congress, are, are any of the agreements in place or the mechanisms placed contingent upon the existing NAFTA or or they sort of have an independent status, uh, you know, derived from previous agreements? Uh, and I'm t just talking about Canada here. Yeah, with regard to Canada, no, the if we withdrew from NAFTA, we have the backup of Canada's free trade and we have other agreements that we've signed to govern uh, trade back and forth. Uh, that are binding. So uh, that wouldn't put the big shock uh, into the Canadian energy sector or the bilateral energy trade. However, and this is an important however, one of the reasons that Canada has uh, been able to develop some of its energy resources, whether we're talking about hydroelectric dams in the northern part of Quebec or the oil sands in Alberta, is that uh, they had the U.S. market. These are resources that are far from population centers that are a tremendous piece of natural resource wealth for the Canadians. But in order to develop them, you needed scale because they just weren't going to be economically viable uh, if they were only serving the Canadian population. And it was often American companies directly or bondholders who, who invested in, in Hydro-Quebec and other, uh, other enterprises that helped finance the development of these resources, really tapped them for the first time on the promise that there was an American market for them. So if the U.S. walks away from the Canadian energy market, we'll walk away from something that generations of Americans built, invested in, and helped to make possible. Now, Canada could find a way to sell its energy products to other countries, probably not the electricity, but, but certainly some of the other more, more portable uh, resources.
resources. But for the U.S. to walk away from that, really, uh, even at a time when we're producing record amounts of oil and gas, is nonetheless a, a real short-sightedness on our part, I think. Uh, so, Chris, you, you raise an interesting point that I'm, I'm actually going to ask uh, Andrew about, and that is sort of this relationship is different in that it's not just simply energy showing up on the dock in the United States and then it's distributed, you know, by uh, – train or truck or whatever, this is a border in which you have, you know, production on one side going to distribution and consumption on the other side. And you sort of get that geographical scale that you don't have if, if you're just, say, shipping the oil and tankers and, and so on. Uh, Andrew, the, the program here at CSIS has produced a very impressive map uh, recently that's available on our website if, if folks want to check it out. And it basically is very detailed breakdown of the types of energy flowing back and forth across the border, U.S.-Canadian border, and and more specifically sort of each state and the sort of the dollar amounts, the types of energy, and then the relative um, contribution, shall we say, of that energy trade to the state's uh, GDP. So could you sort of... Uh, and I know this is a podcast, so you know we're we're explaining a visual map. And it's a little bit difficult, but what sort of things after you've completed this map jumped out at you in terms of perhaps individual states and their uh, their you know participation in this energy trade or sort of overall observations about the the cross border trade? Yeah, so <clears throat> we did a few things in the analysis. The, the The starting point was to break down the values of trade by every single state. But we realized after doing that, that it, it actually told us very little about the relationship. So, you know, there, there's some states that have massive quantities of trade, like Illinois is the largest one on the US side, followed by Texas. But, uh, and then on the Canadian side, for obviously re obvious reasons, is Alberta. Um, <clears throat> as I said, though, the, these, these values alone provide limited insight into how important the trade is for the economy of each, each state. Uh, so we employed the use of a, a trade to GDP ratio um, to represent the combined weight of total energy trade in the economy of each state and province. So we calculated this ratio for every single state and province. And essentially what this value helped us to understand was that the level of dependence of the level of dependence of energy exporters on the market across the border, as well as the level of reliance of a state or province on the energy supplies uh, that flow across this border. Um, so, you know, Alberta and Illinois remained right on top in, in this ranking as well. But some, some interesting ones that came out, like on the Canadian side, for example, was New Brunswick, which actually had the highest ranking on the map altogether. Um, and that's because their economy, you know, is relatively small, um, but they do export over $5 billion worth of commodities to the U.S. And for those listeners not familiar with their Canadian geography, New Brunswick borders Maine. Yeah. yeah. So that was actually w one of the factors that came out from this analysis that you can see, if you take a look at the map, you can see that a lot of the states that rank highly on the scale are along the border. So geographic proximity obviously plays an important role in determining how reliant a state is. So on the, on the US side, it's really uh, New Hampshire, Montana and North Dakota that are the states that are highly dependent on this, this energy trading relationship for the for um, for their economy, right? Um, so we we also looked at cross border pipelines and weighted them and mapped them out. And obviously, this is another this is another factor that illustrates, you know, the the connectivity between certain states with pipelines that has a relationship to how dependent the state is on on the energy trading relationship. 
I, I'd say that at a broader level, though, um, through the use of these various metrics and visualizations, I, I hope the point that we managed to get across was that it's a, it's very much overall, it's a very much interdependent and mutually beneficial relationship. Um, and you know that energy producers in both countries are dependent on the market across the border for revenues and domestic energy consumers are dependent on the energy supply that flows across the border. Andrew, do we have any idea in terms of a jobs multiplier effect? Uh, I mean, when this energy comes across the border, whether it's crude oil or gas or electricity, does that, uh, what sort of jobs does that create sort of outside the energy sector? Do we do yeah, anything about yeah. that? Yeah, so we, we, we tried to look at that metric. What we found about the job numbers is that it's, it's a very difficult thing to calculate, so we wanted to keep it as... Uh, you know, as accurate as possible. And we decided that the best way to communicate as well, the importance of the relationship and to understand how the energy flows happen um, was to leave the job numbers off it. Uh, just to share with those listeners who haven't had a chance, uh, you know, in the United States, we don't think about energy because the, the electricity is always there when we flip the switch and there's always gas in the gas station when we need to fill up. And, and we, we really take for granted the fact that we have a stable, reliable energy supply across all modes. And Canada is part of that picture. And as we talk about things like uh, the relationship between Canada and the U.S., North American economic integration, it gets a bit abstract. And I think what Andrew and his team have done in putting together this very understandable, comprehensible, intelligible picture with good data uh, is to really reveal what's all around us, which is a high degree of integrated, cooperative, collaborative production that benefits manufacturing, it benefits agriculture, it benefits a whole range of the economy that just wouldn't be possible with, without the contributions Canada makes to U.S. energy uh, security, reliability, and, and to some extent, goes the other way, the contributions the U.S. makes to Canada's economy. And I, you always struggle with uh, international relations thinking uh, in that sort of extended, uh, abstract, global picture. But when you really look at the data, and as Andrew has done, you, you see that it really brings it home. It really connects to the lives everyday people have. And it's, I think, very important now more than ever as we're renegotiating NAFTA to understand those codependencies and those intervulnerabilities, because that's what we're really talking about. You know, more than more than anything else. I would completely agree with Chris there, and that's what it really hit at home is the you know the a lot of the focus more recently it seems to be evaluating um, trading partnerships based on whether we have a trade deficit or where we have a surplus. I think this really is the perfect example that explains the complexity of many trade relationships and that what a terrible metric uh, just looking at at a trade surplus or a trade deficit and and going on the basis of whether that that uh, judging economic or trade policy, whether it's good or not. Um, so I, I, th I, I think maybe this could be used as an example uh, to illustrate that looking at trade balances alone is not uh, an accurate depiction of how valuable a particular uh, trading relationship is. Right. Well, so both of you perfectly queued up my next question. Uh, and so I'm going to, because of that, I'm going to sort of ask both of you, uh, Chris, maybe you can respond first. But looking at this map, it strikes me is that, you know, it, it's got a great um, presentation for the economic data. But if, if I'm like a chamber of commerce or anybody, I'm looking at this, and this is also very valuable information because it shows me sort of the natural partnerships, I guess, and maybe even the, sort of like a political 
um, potential here in, in terms of, we've talked about this before, Chris, sort of the, the Canadians during NAFTA were very smart, or the Canadian government, to reach out to states in which there's a significant amount of Canadian trade, um, you know, trying to leverage that for, for sort of influence back in Washington. And, and looking at this map, you know, I, since it's helpfully color-coded and sort of see the relative importance of energy, I'm thinking, you know, probably by now, uh, Montana, North Dakota, Saskatchewan, and Alberta have gotten together either their chambers of commerce or their delegation, respective delegations to their respective their uh, congresses and said, like, hey, our interests are really intertwined here. Uh, we need to start cooperating at more than just a you know, sort of economic level, but some sort of a political or business level. Chris, any evidence that that's happening um, in terms of, say, at the industry association level or even at the, at the political level? In my conversations with people in the energy sector, and, and I don't know if that's the same for Andrew, I think there, there's been a growing appreciation that the environmental community um, concerned about climate change and local impacts of economic activity have done a better job of making a case to citizens of the potential risks of economic activity, whether it's building a factory or a pipeline or a power line uh, to across territory or near your house. And they've connected with people very well and built a, a real uh, awareness of the sensitivity of some of our ecosystems. Where the private sector has not done as good a job is in telling its story and the way in which our, our quality of life is really tied to the energy that helps power it. Uh, and one of the great examples where this is really coming to home in Canada now is a debate about the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which is owned by Kinder Morgan, which connects the oil sands to Vancouver. And that pipeline is being tripled in capacity. Uh, that's at least the proposal. The D.C. government approved and the federal government approved, and so they were ready to break ground on it at the end of, of this month, uh, May uh, 2018. However, the D.C. government had an election. They have a new government which has come out very much against the pipeline and has tried to block it in court. And it's brought home for Canadians. And this is just a Canadian versus Canadian battle so far mm -hmm. that uh, that their livelihood and their preferences in terms of the environment have to be weighed against the needs of their neighbors or else there is no national interest. So I think that in a small scale has, has, wide, has kind of focused the importance of understanding in a much more comprehensive way how these issues connect to our daily lives so that we can make a balanced judgment on how to proceed. Let me just follow up one with one, sort of one more question about this. And that's, um, you know, it's ironic that when you hear the phrase open borders, it's usually almost always, it is always in reference to sort of migration, people crossing the border. And, and what does that mean to sovereignty? And, you know, you're either for it or against it, so on. But essentially, we've got now open borders when it comes to energy, certainly with Canada and, and probably soon with Mexico. And it just seems to me that is going to have a, a potentially a really big impact on the political relationship, or at least the the, the diplomatic relationship, because you now have people on both sides of the border that are heavily invested, um, either as consumers or producers, in the health of or the development of a certain uh, type of energy resource. Any any thoughts on that, Chris? Well, sure. I mean, I think this is one of the things that's very, particularly for the younger generation of millennials coming up, they are conscientious consumers. And we could be buying our energy from Russia. We could be buying our energy from other countries. 
what we get by buying it from Canada is the chance to know that Canada is a well-regulated, <laughs> democratically accountable country that has good environmental standards, that where those standards are set, they're accountable to the public. So we know we're not causing damage to our Canadian friends by exploiting their resources and that they're not going to in turn try to damage us. And being a conscientious consumer means being an informed consumer. And I think when you are an informed consumer about the energy we get from Canada, you come away feeling pretty good about Canada as a source of that energy. Uh, Mexico, I think, similarly uh, can tell part of that story. But there are a lot of places that have energy wealth but just don't have good governance. And it's a part of the equation that for too long we left you know, by the wayside. But it's, I think, a very positive story for Canada to tell and for, for Americans to know uh, that this is this is good energy because in part it's been produced in a, in a good way, in an accountable way uh, and in a responsible way. So, Chris, it sounds like when the Open Energy Borders Party gets started, they're going to recruit you to uh, to run for another seats, right? <laughs> well, I, if, if nominated, I will not stand. If elected, I will not serve. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so, Andrew, what, what sort of if we look into our, our crystal balls here in terms of the development of the energy relationship with Canada, which is already very strong and, and probably getting stronger, what sort of things do you think we'll see, say, in the next 10 to 20 years? Or is it basically more of the same, just more of it? Or, or do you think one of the two countries is going to sort of move at a different pace than the other one in terms of exploration, development, and delivery? What What are your thoughts? Yeah, so I, I do think a lot of things are changing, um, you know, overall on the continent re with regards to energy. T total primary energy demand on the continent is actually less than what it was a decade ago. So increasingly Canada, or in, in the US at least, that more of the sources of supply of energy would be coming from renewable sources of supply and that more of those hydrocarbons, because hydrocarbon production is growing in the US, more of those hydrocarbons will be going to export markets. Um, and the same trend is happening in Canada. Um, primary energy demand is very flat, but uh, hydrocarbon production is continuing to grow. So both countries will be exporting more more products, more more crude oil and petroleum products and natural gas to global markets. Uh, so I think there's great opportunity there for the two countries to work together to try and in further integrate those supply chains to get those products to the markets. The, uh, and as Chris said earlier, you know, the, the really one of the big um, probably uncertainties in the in the short to medium term at the moment is related to this uh, building of of pipeline capacity uh, of getting those the, uh, getting those products to the to the centers that they need to be to to reach global markets one more question for you you know we haven't um, talked too much about mexico but of course mexico is part of the equation uh, the energy relationship is quite significant do, do you foresee a time or are we already there in that the three countries aren't sort of meaningful competitors anymore as they, as they are sort of joint producers and joint consumers and, and the competition occurs more between industries than it does between countries? I think it's an interesting question. One, one of the things you see in the Canadian energy sector that uh, maybe stands out as a, a particular characteristic is that like the U.S., majority of the oil sands, most of the natural gas and a good portion of electricity are produced by by the private sector. And there is no Canadian state-owned oil company. There's no single state-owned gas utility. And so the, the pattern of development has very much followed the market uh, under 
obviously an accountable government that's tried to regulate in the public interest. Mexico, for a long time, uh, in order to develop its resources, went the other way. A strong state-led corporations that had publicly guaranteed monopolies to be able to develop the resources. And it was something that I think the Peña Nieto government recognized just wasn't getting the job done. It wasn't helping them to adapt. And so they took this historic leap just really just a few years ago to open up to private sector competition and private investment from foreign companies to help them develop their energy resources on a pace with their growing economy, which has really, thanks to NAFTA, made great strides. I think there's a Goldman Sachs report that says Mexico's middle class today is the size of the Canadian population, some 35 million, and that's expected to grow, but only if the energy resources are there to fuel that growth, uh, whether they're renewable or not. And Mexico's turning to the private sector is, is, I think, a hopeful sign. It's a sign that there could be some competition, some investment in R&D, and perhaps a very compatible three economies that not only have great energy resources and the outward orientation, but which share a market orientation, which I still think at the end of the day is the best way to get the innovation that we want, provided that there's good sound regulation and and government accountability uh, over the top of it. Uh, well, great. On that optimistic note, I think we'll we'll bring this podcast to a close. But Andrew, I want to uh, you know congratulate you and the energy program for this excellent map. Again, it's called U.S. Canada Energy Trade. It's available on the CSIS website. I encourage people to check it out. And uh, very happy to partner again uh, in, for our podcast, Energy 360 and 35 West. I believe it's the second time that we've done this, and I hope we do this again. Chris, thanks very much for, for joining us from Quebec. I'll let you go back to doing what it is you're doing up there in Canada, um, hopefully laying the groundwork for your run for the Open Borders Energy Party, or whatever you're going to call it. <laughs> Well, I'm just hoping that uh, uh, we can get Andrew to do a U.S.-Mexico border map next. (laughs) Okay, great. Um, Well, thank you very much, gentlemen, for joining me. 